0: Welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Delm. My guest is filmmaker Sarah Polly. Sarah has a new film out called Women Talking, and she's the acclaimed director of films like Away From Her, which received Oscar nominations for actor Julie Christie, as well as for Sarah's adapted screenplay, Her other films include Take This Waltz, starring Michelle Williams, and a documentary concerning her own family called Stories We Tell. I'm gonna say more about Sarah in a second, but first, just really quickly, the next unspeakeasy retreat will be in Los Angeles in February. So uh, the unspeaky, as you know, is my free thinking women's community. We're going to have several retreats in 2023 and we're working on them, but we have announced the first one. It is going to be a weekend long retreat. That's a little different than uh, the kind of signature retreats that are generally three nights, four days. This one is just two days. They are day events only, and it's going to be really amazing. We're going to have guest speakers, incredible discussions It's in a beautiful venue on the west side of Los Angeles, weekend of February 18th and 19th. So if you are interested in that, go to theunspeakeasy.com and request information. Okay, back to my guest, Sarah Polly. Her new film, Women Talking, is an almost all-female ensemble piece that includes actors like Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy, Judith Ivey, and Frances McDormand. And it takes place in a Mennonite colony, in this conversation, Sarah talks about that film and also about a book of essays she published earlier this year called Run Towards the Danger, which I reviewed for the New York Times. Sarah has also had a long acting career in Canada that began when she was five years old. She was the star of a major hit television series that got her dubbed Canada's Sweetheart, and she appeared in films like Terry Gilliam's Adventures of Baron Munchausen and Adam O'Goyan's Exotica, and The Sweet Hereafter. She's also been a committed political activist for much of her career. We spent most of the first half of this interview talking about her films and her book and ideas about storytelling and the creative process. In the second half, we talked about her feelings about the Me Too movement, her desire to bring complexity to discussions about difficult topics, and how as a white woman artist, she balances her personal ambitions with her deep belief in greater inclusivity. It's a great conversation, and I was really grateful to have it and So here it is Sarah Polly, welcome to the Unspeakable. Thank you. We're recording this interview as you're in the midst of publicity for your latest film, Women Talking, which is being released in the u s on december twenty third I believe. But I originally got in touch with you earlier this year after reviewing your collection of essays run toward the danger for the New York Times. When I was offered that assignment, I jumped at the chance because I'm a huge fan of your work both as a director and as an actor. So I want to talk about everything that you do, but I thought a place to start might actually be at the intersection of having published a book this year and having a new film out. So much of the book is about the process of filmmaking and film promoting. So I wonder if that's any different for you now to be doing that uh, with this film after you've talked so openly about the process in a published book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I I sort of dovetailed the process of working on the film and the book where, you know, I'd been writing the book obviously on and off for years and then was getting more serious about it and kind of, driving it towards completion. And then Women Talking came along and I wrote the initial drafts of that script and then COVID happened. So we had a delay in production. So I went back and finished the book and then went back to Women Talking. So I think inevitably they are in conversation with each other. And there were a lot of opportunities to think about and reflect on how to make the process of making this film more reflective of of what felt to me like a working environment there where there was a presence of care, which has always been important to me based on the experiences I had, you know, primarily as a kid where there, there really wasn't the presence of care. But yeah, it was just, I think it was always important to me, but I'd would i done such a sort of rigorous investigation into my own past experiences and where the harm was, but more importantly, where I felt like things could be improved and and what we could do as a team to do so. So it was a pretty amazing experience i think there are a few things in life that are more satisfying than getting to have a past experience or something that looks like a past experience go a different and better way than it did in the past there there is you know a lot of healing in that
0: oh so like you mean in seeing your actors have a better situation than you had you mean
1: yeah and and in general the crew too and just you know having shorter hours and having you know a stated concern for people's well-being where you know if people needed to stop or take a break or go home that was always on the table for everybody um we had a therapist on set we were had really strict rules around the happiness of the kids on set where that was sort of the the primary focus if they were there and they weren't happy or even a bit uncomfortable the idea was you know they could they could be released at any moment i i don't know that we solved that like i kind of came out of the experience feeling like my instinct that there isn't really a good way of having kids in a professional environment is probably right because we did literally everything I could have possibly done to make it a good experience. And I think most of the kids would say it was, although I don't think I'll get a clear answer from them until, you know, they're 40 or something I've been through. Yeah, of until therapy. they write their own books. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Until they write their own books. But what you can't control for are the things you don't see. Like, I don't know what their home life is like. I don't know what their parents' interests are in them being there. Like, you just can't control for everything. So, the idea of kids being in an adult professional environment still just, you know, no matter what I did on that front, I'm not sure I resolved it.
0: Yeah. And we should be clear, just so our listeners know, you were a child actor. You started acting Mm -hmm. very, very young. And a lot of what you talk about in your book is really perilous, unsafe situations that you were in. You talk about being in the adventures of Baron Munchausen, the Terry Gilliam film, and just like, explosions going off and special effects that you only later realized could have killed you, really. And so that's a a running theme throughout the book. So just so our listeners are clear, when you're talking about harm, you're talking about literal physical harm, right? Yeah, I'm talking about about emotional harm. harm.
1: Yes. But but actually both, like, I mean, I think that, yes, that like I had some very extreme experiences, but even the sort of day-to-day experience of a child in a professional environment is very complex and possibly pretty damaging just in terms of the pressure and expectations and sense of being thrust into an environment full of adults who are not particularly interested or trained to be around children. Like, I I kind of think... It's sort of like my experience as a kid, yes, they were definitely extreme, but I I do question the whole enterprise generally. I mean, again, I I have kids in the film I just made. They have very, very small peripheral roles, and we were able to just basically let them play in a field for most of the time and follow them. So it didn't feel right for, you know, long lasting trauma. But you know, I just it does feel odd to me in a society that's decided kids shouldn't work, that we have kids working.
0: Yeah. So how old were you when you started acting? For my American listeners, you were Canada's sweetheart. So uh, you were like the, it was like the little house on the prairie of Canada.
1: Yeah, it was called Road to Avonlea or in the States, it was called Avonlea. It was on the Disney Channel here and on CBC in Canada. And I mean, I started acting when I was five years old. And then that show, I think, began when I was about nine. Okay. Okay.
0: So like, you talk a lot in the book just about being really on your own. I think you left home when you were not even 15. I mean, you come from this really interesting family, a lot of performers, a lot of artists in your family, and you ended up going to live with your brother's girlfriend for a while. Is that it? Uh
1: Yeah. When I was 14. Yeah. 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 How was that even allowed? I was wondering (laughs) that when
0: I was reading the book, actually.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I mean, she was in her early twenties, but I mean, in general, my dad, after my mother died, really did fall apart. I mean, I'm not sure how much he was ever together, but the existence of her made him able to function, live a pretty functional life. But, you know, he didn't have any life skills. I mean, he didn't know how to clean. He slowly taught himself how to cook, but there wasn't a sense of him being a hands-on parent in any sense of the word. And in fact, he sort of stated that, that he would much rather be, you know, he was my friend, not a parent. And- didn't, there were no rules. So when I said I want to move out when I'm 14, because we lived in a small town outside of Toronto and I wanted to live in the city, you know, the answer was, like, you know, I kind of wish you'd stay, but there's nothing I, nothing I could do about it. And then very shortly after that, I lived with a boyfriend and then and then alone for a while as a, as a young teenager.
0: Did you like acting, the process of it? Forget all the stress and the stage fright and all that, the actual craft of it. Was it something that you enjoyed as a child?
1: I... Don't remember loving it at any point, except when I was 14 was the first time I was in a more serious movie. I was in Exotica by Adam Mm McGowan. And I suddenly saw in that experience an opportunity to speak some kind of truth that I'd been holding through this dialogue and through this experience of being in this film that was really revelatory to me. And I would say I, I did start to enjoy it through my work with Adam both in that and the film The Sweet Hereafter.
0: Yeah, that was where I first encountered you. I was so struck by The Sweet Hereafter when I first saw it when it came out. Mm. Everything about it, just the storytelling, the score actually was really yeah. I I actually the Michael Dana score. I think I had it like on CD or something oh, <laughs> and an I listened to the actual score. score and you have songs on the soundtrack too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how much like Input did you have? It felt you you were narrating the film. You star in it. You're singing. We are, we're hearing you as a singer songwriter, just sort of you know off screen as part of the as part of the musical experience of the film. It's not a musical, just to be clear. Anything but a <laughs> musical. It's about as far from a musical as a film can get. Let's just sort of make no mistake. I, it's like, do you think that you were starting to become a director at that time? Or was was that when the seeds were planted was with a, Adam? Yeah.
1: I mean, it wasn't conscious to me that I wanted to make my own films, but it was certainly the first time it had registered for me that it was a worthwhile thing to do to make films. If you were making a film that had something to say and that you were deeply committed to and was made by an artist like Adam, like that had never occurred to me. It just seemed like this completely superficial waste of time. And I think because I was a political activist, the majority of my time when I was a teenager, this whole notion of making films just seemed so superficial and ridiculous. And I think watching Adam was probably the first time a light bulb went off. And I went like, that's actually like, what he's doing is trying to make a contribution to a conversation or reveal something, some emotional truth or something about being human. And uh, that was staggering to me. So it probably did plant the seeds. Although I think it was a few years before it occurred to me that I might want to make my own films.
0: And your first film was Away From Her. Is that right? Yeah. At least your first feature.
1: That was my first feature. I'd made about five short films before that, and I sort of fell into that by accident. I had just dropped out of the movie Almost Famous, which was supposed to be this big career-making role. Yeah. Oh, my (laughs) God. it It was this big thing where, you know, if you dropped out of that movie... Like, clearly you didn't want to be an actor that much um, because it was really clear what the trajectory was. Like, I felt like they were already booking Vanity Fair covers. And and I just suddenly went, like, what am I doing? And I kind of backed away from it. And I think it was like really clear to me, okay, well, I don't want to go down this path of being like this Hollywood movie star. Like, I genuinely don't. So what do I want to do? And I went kind of into a depression for a few months after that. I had let so many people down, and in that depression, I came up with this idea for a short film. And I'd never considered writing and directing anything. And I remember one of the last things I said to Cameron in email was to Cameron Crowe was I feel like I'm supposed to do something, but I don't know what it is yet. I just know it's not this. And Mm. so it was like this strange, strange thing where I had this sudden idea for this short film. I went and made it in my brother's house with a bunch of crew who I had known from over the years and it was not a good film and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I never felt more fulfilled in my life than in those two or three days. And so I suddenly went, Oh, like, I think, I think I just need the agency of being able to tell the stories that I want to tell and to sort of be in on this sticky, messy, hard part of the process that, you know, when you're an actor, you get sent to the trailer for, like, I think, you know, I was missing all the most interesting parts of the filmmaking process when I was an actor. And I suddenly saw this amazing opportunity to combine what I'd always wanted to do, which was to be a writer with a world I knew and to be able to sort of train in it. And so I started making short films. I went to film school at some point in there after a few short films, just to make sure like I hadn't missed anything crucial. And then I started making my own films. So you wanted to be a writer. So were you
0: like, what kinds of books were you reading when you were growing up? This is all leading up to how you ended up making, adapting this Alice Munro story in this extraordinary film. But like, what kind of reader were you?
1: I, I mean, I had a weird diet of books. Like to begin with, I think the first series books I read were all D.H. Lawrence, which I loved when mm. I was 13, which in retrospect is so strange. I loved Anne Michaels so much, her poetry. I loved Michael Andace. What else? I love Nabokov. I think I read a lot of Russians. I read a lot of like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, like when I was an early teenager. And I think those were really formative for me. So yeah, I and then it sort of, but it was really messy and weird because I never really had a formal education. So I was always picking up stuff from the people I would work with or who I would get to know, which actually was kind of a great education because I was sort of reading as life led me to things instead of having them on a syllabus, which I sometimes sort of regret not having gone to university, but I I had this kind of amazing way of organically falling into different writers.
0: Yeah. So when I saw away from her that came out in 2006, Julie Christie and Gordon Pinson, she is struggling with dementia. It's a very, it's a very quiet film. Her performance is incredible I, like probably everybody else who saw the film without knowing who directed it or wrote it, assumed that like a much older person had directed it. I mean, this is a film about old people and, (laughs) and there's, and you know, one of them has dementia. What in the world drew you to this project?
1: I mean, I loved Alice Munro and I read all her first short stories. And I remember that story came out in the New Yorker. And I was reading it on a plane on my way back from Iceland where I'd just been in a film that was directed by Hal Hartley called No Such Thing, which was this kind of postmodern monster movie, which I really love that nobody ever saw. And I met Julie Christie while I was filming it. And we had this sort of magical time in Iceland where we really bonded. And then on the way home, I read this short story and I just saw Julie's face. And so kind of on a lark, I tried to get the rights and I, and I did, I'd been trying to make another first film for a really long time. And it was, I think it was actually about a child actor and it got turned down many, many times by Telefilm, our, our film funding agency, each time more humiliating than the last. And I, when I read this short story, I thought, I really want to make this into a film with Julie. I know the chances of me getting funding for this are very low. I wasn't sort of willing to come down to the States and like hustle. I was like very only wanted to make a film in the Canadian system where you had creative freedom. And I sort of gave myself a deadline and went like, if I'm going to option this story and if I don't have it made in a year, I'm not going to try to make a film again. And I think that was the energy I actually took to get a film made. So it really was about kind of Julie and the story and just being so curious about the combination of those things.
0: The Bear Came Over the Mountain is the name of the Alice yeah. Munro story. Like I'm thinking the movie is so wintry. They they're they're um cross-country skiing all the time. Mm-hmm. They live out in the, you know, in a rural area and everything is covered with snow. I can't remember if that was the case in the story. Like now you're saying Iceland, like was there a sort of Icelandic aesthetic that kind of imprinted itself on you from the beginning
1: weirdly in bear came over the mountain. There's a lot of references to Iceland too, because he teaches Norse mythology and there's, there's all these strange like references to the book letters from Iceland by Auden, And yeah, it's just like a real, and, and McNeese, and there's just a very weird bunch of strange connections, but yeah, there, there is cross country skiing in the, in the story as I remember it. And and I just remember thinking it was such a, yeah, it just, it's a very visual short story.
0: Yeah. So what was it like when that came out? I mean, what was it like to to talk about the film? What was it like to suddenly be a filmmaker and not an actor in a film?
1: It was a crazy experience because I made it with so little ambition. I mean, I really wanted to make it. I was so fascinated by the way it talked about memory and different perspectives on a relationship and the way somebody can change as a relationship is falling apart and that sense of loss in it and of looking back at the past from different perspectives. Like there was so much in it that drew me to it and I wanted to make it, but like, I was so entrenched in the Canadian film industry and, and with the exception of, you know, movies like the sweet Hereafter, which, you know, are really big exceptions to the rule. I was really used to the fate of most Canadian films being, you know, you play a week at the Carlton cinema in Toronto, which was this, you know, this multiplex that was the only place that played Canadian films. And, and then you're done. Like you sort of make it because, you want to make it and maybe hopefully you have a bit of a conversation about it, but I had no clue that the film would find an audience and that would have this big life and I'd get to travel with it. It was the whole thing was so wonderful because I think having a success like that can only truly be enjoyed if, if you don't need it or that you, you know, that you haven't been working towards it. You don't need it. You don't have anything attached to it. It was just like this big gift. And I got to have so many interesting conversations with people. I got to make another film quite easily. Like that was a, it was just a lot that was unexpected and wonderful came out of it.
0: So when you say work within the Canadian system, what does that mean? Explain that to an American.
1: So all of my films up until Women Talking have been made either with telefilm or government film funding agency or the National Film Board. Both are publicly funded. And At least when I was making films, there I'm not sure how things have changed over the years. I think the NFP is very similar to how it was, but the idea is it's about people's creative voices and the culture as opposed to turning a profit. I mean, again, this may have changed over the years, and I think they are a little bit more profit driven now. But but ultimately, you don't have people making things just to be commercial. You have people trying to make things where the filmmaker ultimately has more agency. So you know, I never got. I got notes, but they weren't the same kinds of notes. <laughs> they weren't like studio system. They weren't like, yeah, it wasn't like someone was meddling in somebody from the Canadian government giving like Hollywood development executive style notes. That would be very funny. I mean, to be honest with you, I think there have been many stages where that actually has been the case, but they're kind of like low rent studio notes. You know what I mean? It's (laughs) like a Canadian trying to be like an American studio notes. And I think they've gone through phases in their existence where they do a really great job and then phases where, depending on who the people are, they are meddling in, you know, to make things commercially, but failing. And, you know, like, I don't know where they're at right now. I, I think it's an okay stage as far as I know. But what ironically... Then making women talking, you know, Dee Dee Gardner at plan B who produced the film along with Frances McDormand um, plan B had this deal at MGM and, you know, she had this amazing relationship with the executives there. And actually at no point in this film, did I feel a studio meddling in, in an unproductive way ever. So whatever my like, wow boogeyman image of the American studio is like, I'm now woefully naive to the point where I'm sure I'll go into the next thing and it will not be this utopian. But it was such a good experience. Let's hope this is not a huge success. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so wait, not not to dwell on this, but I think that people
0: are really interested in this. So does that like effectively, if you're making a film in Canada, every filmmaker is an independent filmmaker, effectively. Like, is that does that make sense? Like, what's the gatekeeping mechanism with respect to getting
1: funding? Like, that must be hard. I mean, it, it is. I mean, I know it is because I didn't get funding for a long time. And I, I quite honestly can't speak to what it's like at this moment. But back then, it was usually a few people at a local level and then people at a national level. And then there was like this national committee. It sounds like so Soviet, where like, you know, the regions would go sort of vie for their movies. And I do remember that away from her, got financed in this environment where, you know, people were at the national committee saying they weren't going to finance the film. And one person who had recently been hired at the local office and who had a parent who was suffering from dementia, who the the script really spoke to, basically staked his job on it and said, "I, I don't want to do this job if you don't give this movie money. And that's literally the reason it it got made. So I mean, it's not perfect. Like there's all kinds of issues. And I know some people who've had it to the point where they're looking for other sources, but in theory, the idea of public money for the arts or any artistic endeavor, I think is, is a really good idea, just in terms of making sure people are focused on the quality of something as opposed to just, you know, making a buck. So, yeah, I mean, I think in theory it's a really great thing and, and it served me really, really well with my first Few films, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have been. If, here's the thing I wouldn't have been a filmmaker if it hadn't been for public money because I'm not an entrepreneur. So I know a lot of American independent filmmakers. The reason they can do it and that they have done it is they're also the kind of people who can, you know, would be able to go out and set up a small business and make it successful. It's a whole other skill set you have to have to go hustle and sell. And I didn't have that. Like, I didn't have it. I don't have it. And I didn't want to develop it. So I would have gone and written books and hopefully if someone had let me and not made films had it not been for the public system in Canada. Like I just would never have had that hustle. I'm extremely ambitious and work really hard at the films I make. I'm not going to thrive in that business hustly environment. So I'm always amazed when I meet great filmmakers here because I know they also have this other skill set that you have to have when you're trying to drum up you know, private money for films.
0: That is so interesting. I never thought of it that way. Although I was actually just this morning as I probably have this thought most mornings, just the way it, in the new, in this kind of creative economy, everybody is an entrepreneur, whether you're a writer, a filmmaker, a musician, any kind of creator, right? It's not, you're not an artist anymore. You're a creator. Yeah. We've all <laughs> been put in this position and i but I never thought of it like even before things changed that a, an American filmmaker, at least independent filmmaker, is constantly it is an yeah. entrepreneur they, I mean you're co- they're constantly asking for money, so I guess that's what you mean It's like
1: ninety five percent of the job here. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, I had this amazing experience on women talking where I didn't have to do that because I had producers who were established enough and had these amazing relationships with studios where i didn't have to but but anybody I know who's a filmmaker. Now, I really think 95% of your job is selling something. And then I think the really complicated thing becomes there's a difference between how you sell something and then how you make it quite intentionally. And then the trick is if you've spent years selling something and using that language, do you remember your own language by the time you go to make it? Like, do you, do you have a good sense of what it is you started out wanting to do before you had to create the pitch? Or do you just make the pitch?
0: So does it happen in the Canadian system where
1: they say, we'll make the film, but you have to put this star in it? I think it's become more that way. Again, I feel like I'm I'm ill-equipped to speak to this, but I, I definitely felt pressure around casting at various points. And I think people do feel that for sure but i don't think it's in the same way i don't think it's the same kind of pressure again it's like it's hard for me to comment on because i haven't been in that situation just tomorrow. thinking
0: out loud here because that's one thing i have heard from independent filmmakers in the states like they'll have a script that's really subtle or it has particular kinds of characters or you know a main character for instance that's not especially glamorous let's say and then they can only get the film made if they put a glamorous movie star in that role yeah yeah <laughs> and it completely changes the tenor of the film Yeah. So it was, was Take This Waltz the next film after Away From Her? Yeah. Take This Waltz. And that that had some big, that had a big star that had Michelle Williams.
1: It did. And, you know, I saw so many people for that role, including lesser known actors. And Michelle wasn't something, someone I had thought of. I mean, she was an actor I admired, but I I hadn't seen her in that role. And then when I met with her and and she did her reading, I was just suddenly there was just nobody else for that part. But it, it actually kind of surprised me to cast somebody that high profile in that part because that wasn't necessarily the, the intention setting that I set out with.
0: Yeah, an incredible Sarah Silverman performance there.
1: Yeah, I know. Unforgettable. I, mean, I was such a fan of hers. And uh, yeah, I was so excited to, to do something with her that was dramatic because I hadn't seen her do a dramatic role before. And-
0: yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Cast against type. <laughs> And that locker room scene is
1: unforgettable. (laughs) A lot of that is my brother, John Buchan, is my casting director. And he's always the one who kind of comes up with an idea in the middle of the night that just seems nuts at first and then slowly reveals itself to be a great idea. And and that Sarah Silverman, I mean, he knew I was a huge fan and we watched her show a lot. But I think, you know, that was definitely his idea of like, what if? Like, what if she was brilliant as a dramatic actor? Why wouldn't she be? Um, so that was definitely his his doing.
0: Well, let's talk about women talking and sort of by way of backing up also into uh, talking about the book more, because I love the way you say that these projects were in conversation with one another. Mm-hmm. So women talking is based on a, a novel by the Canadian writer Miriam Taves. Had you read that novel? Were you familiar with it? Or how did it come into your orbit?
1: Yeah, I I had certainly read it as soon as it as soon as it came out. And I loved it. Like I'm a huge I'm a huge Miriam fan and it came out you know, it, it had such a force behind it that book when it came out. Like the conversation around it was so raw and passionate and I just hadn't actually seen or heard, you know, so many people be that excited about a book in a long time. So I read it early and And it just stuck in me. Like, I just couldn't stop turning over the questions it asked and the way it kind of pulled back to this bird's eye view of a lot of the issues that were in the conversation, but kind of pulled back from almost this, you know, eye of God perspective and went into the stickier, harder things that, you know, were kind of hard to address, certainly at the beginning of the Me Too movement. And then I read, I think on Twitter, it came up on my feed sometime that week that I had read it. That Francis McDormand and Dee Dee Gardner had the rights to it. And I reached out to my manager, Frank Fratteruli, who's also Fran's manager, and just said, you know, do they have a writer-director for this yet? And I think it was like within an hour before I had sent that email, Fran and Dee Dee had emailed Frank saying, What's Sarah Polly doing these days about women? Popping? Oh my god. So it was the strangest coincidence of timing. And it just felt very meant to be.
0: Yeah. So tell us what the film is about. It's based on a real story, incredibly, loosely, I guess. Yeah. But why don't you give us just like a brief thumbnail sketch and then we'll kind of tease it out.
1: Sure. So the background of the film is what's nonfiction and the background of the film is not what you see on screen ever. So I just want to like always preface that with the fact that this is not what's in the film because I wouldn't want to go see this film, but it was based on A series of attacks that happened that were discovered in 2010 in a Mennonite colony in Bolivia, where was this sort of ongoing series of assaults that happened at night while women were sleeping. They were put out with cow tranquilizer and raped in their sleep, and they would wake up and see bruises and evidence of rape. And they were basically told by the elders of the colony that they were making it up, that this was a wild act of female imagination, or that they were ghosts or Satan That had raped them because of their sins. They were accused of adultery. Eventually, a couple of the men were caught, and I think eight or nine of them went to prison. So Miriam uses that as the background of this fictionalized, what she calls, taking back the language of female imagination, she calls, this is an act of of female imagination, is this concept that while the men go to bail out the men who have been taken to jail at the beginning of this, the women of the colony have a vote whether to stay and fight, leave, or stay and do nothing and forgive the men. And the vote is tied between leaving and staying and fighting. So two families of women are tasked with debating and discussing until they come to an agreement on what the colony of women is going to do. Are they going to leave the colony and build a new one? Or are they going to stay and fight for the colony that they want? And so it takes place in a hayloft where these women sit over the course of the only 24 hours they have to make this decision because the men are coming back and decide the fate of their colony. And so that's the sort of fictionalized part of it, which is what the film is, is this series of discussions between these women and how they will choose to either rebuild their colony, dismantle the one that they've lived in for so long, and at the same time, try to stay true to their faith and prioritize keeping their children safe.
0: Yeah, it's it's really like a stage play in some ways. Most of it takes place in that hayloft, not all of it, but uh, certainly a lot of it. And it's so fascinating because it's operating on so many levels. Like they're talking about the specifics of their situation, but the questions they ask are really like philosophical questions. They're questions about what to do about any given situation that's not working for you and like just how to live your life, how to have agency and just how to, how to think about yourself in relation to the world. So it's really, it's sort of like this, you're looking at this little tiny, you know, group of women having, you know, talking about one thing that happened and then it's like you're just you could sort of back way up, up further and further back and
1: yeah see just the whole world it does sort of apply to everything and you know one of the things we sort of discovered as we were working on it was this whole idea of stay and fight or leave or do nothing applies in every crucial decision we make in our lives like that is those are the options and to start to think of them in that that terms is a really interesting prism through which to see the world and I I think that What's so interesting is that Miriam, in the book, and hopefully in the translation to film, she manages to take on really the biggest issues we'll face in our time. I mean, faith, forgiveness, healing, um, how to recover from harm, how do you separate a true faith from hierarchical structures that have developed around it? How do you create a world that reflects what you truly believe How do you move forward in community? What does true democracy look like with meaningful consultation and the mess and chaos of that, of having to embrace and incorporate other points of view? What does it feel like to embark on a discussion with people that you don't agree with everything on and and to kind of have to move forward and create a world And move towards progress while working with people that you don't agree on every single issue with, which is something that is so lost right now in terms of the conversation at large. So I just felt like, how how does she manage to do this in such an efficient, economical book? It was just staggering to me. And so the project of getting to try to adapt that to film with really amazing actors was so, it was just really probably the most exciting thing I've ever done creatively.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And I don't want to give away too much of the film, but w- we should say, like, these women have been raped. They've been attacked. It's it's referred to as attacks, right? So, and yeah. it's in some cases by their own family members, by brothers, it's, uh, several yeah. of them are, are pregnant. There have been small children that have been attacked. And, you know, I think what's also notable is that we see how, everybody responds to her trauma in a slightly different way. Like there's a woman who is extremely angry and lashing out every chance she gets. There's one man in the, in the cast, we should say. Uh And so we have, you know, somebody like her and then we have somebody like the Roni Mara character who's very forgiving and she's processed her experience and her trauma a totally different way. Uh And so I thought that was quite effective as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that I think is most important about it is that there's just not one valid response to trauma and that they all kind of make sense as a response to something this horrifying. And I think like we kind of get used to an idea of what a response should look like and you know what a victim looks like and what behaviors make sense. And I think represented in this sort of multi-generational group of women in this film every kind of response is represented.
0: You address a lot of harms in your book, Run Towards the Danger, that you were working on concurrent to working on the film. As you were writing, was it becoming clear to you what kind of meaning some of these events had in a way that you couldn't have sort of processed until you'd actually written them down? I mean, we're talking about, you know, you talk about stuff that happened on movie sets, you talk about stuff that happened in your, just in your own life in in pregnancies, in relationships, what was that like, just in terms of your own kind of personal processing?
1: I mean, it was it was really interesting. i I sort of made sure I wasn't writing it in its current iteration until I felt I'd worked through a lot of it already in therapy because i I didn't want it to be a kind of raw trauma dump, and I was interested too in the kind of forensic. And I think maybe I I took that from stories we tell where I felt like until I'd worked through a lot of it emotionally, I didn't want to make a film about it because I, I didn't want to be using a film as therapy because I, I've, I'd i seen so many personal documentaries at that point and I could really feel where a filmmaker was using it for that, which I think is fine, but it wasn't what I wanted to make. And, and so I think from that process, I kind of went, I want to be in a similar place before I put pen to paper and so i i did a lot of that work in therapy and then i think in the book it was more trying to be like pull back a little bit more so that i could be also self critical and kind of just see a broader map of behavior and how memory was working and and where what human behavior can look like when it's inconsistent and why and to sort of try to tell the stories from both inside them and from outside them and try to see myself with a bit of a distance. But inevitably, in writing about things, if you're invested in it, you're going to discover things. So inevitably, there were those moments that kind of surprised me, or I'd have to find words for feelings I'd never articulated. And that, yeah, so inevitably, you end up learning a lot about yourself, even if you don't want to use it for that purpose.
0: Yeah. So and we should say Stories We Tell is a documentary you made about the life of your mother, and also a learning who your biological father is. Yeah. It's an amazing film. <laughs> when, I, when I was reviewing your book, I wanted to talk about stories we tell. It, it would have been like utterly organic to fold in some kind of discussion <laughs> about it, but there just wasn't room. Like, I literally did not have <laughs> the word count, and it was really frustrating. And uh, after the review came out, like I had several people saying, why didn't you, why, oh why didn't you talk about stories we tell? I was like, you know, and somebody was mad because I didn't mention Adam McGowan. <laughs> people oh my are very God. invested people in People get in you, very you, mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, right. So, That's so nice. stories we tell is a, is a documentary you made um, about your family. And again, it's so, I don't, it's not, I don't, light touch is not the way to say it, but it's, you're operating at a, remo- at a the kind of remove that is artistic. Like, it's not a confession. It's not like a self. You're, you're not taking us through your journey of self-discovery. Uh, You've already made the discovery, and you're trying to make something new out of it. And I think that's what actual artistry is and I think that's that's one of the things I appreciate especially in that especially in documentaries because that's you don't see that as much in documentaries these days
1: yeah and I think what I got interested in was I think what the purpose of making the film wasn't to tell the story of finding my biological father because actually like who cares like lots of people have that story um but I I mean maybe not lots of people but but it's not to me it wasn't That wasn't interesting. I already had lived that story. I didn't really need to put it out there. But what was super interesting to me was how we all had completely different versions of the same story so that I could talk to 10 people in my family and Harry's family, and they would all tell the story completely differently. And I just became fascinated by that. So, and it's, and it's ongoing so that, so anyway, I was interested in telling the story you know, a story from the perspective of a chorus of voices instead of a single perspective. And I think that became really intoxicating to me to kind of look at those differences and how how clingy we get with our narratives, that we're certain our version is the right version and somehow our identity is our identity is kind of knotted up with our narrative and the details of our story being the correct one. I got really fascinated by that. But I'm just noticing now that, like, it's an ongoing thing where... My sister, my biological sister Kathy, who I'm really close to and who's amazing and super involved with my kids. And someone was writing a profile on me recently, and she was talking to them and she was talking about how Harry and I ended up not being that close. And I said, You know, what did you say was the reason? And she said, I said the reason was, you know, you'd had a really supportive dad and and Harry was quite critical of your work. And I went, This is your biological father. Yeah. Yeah. And I just went, he was? He, he was. I <laughs> had <him>, no idea. <laughs> and so she's had this right. narrative that I start sort of like you know had this rift with him because he didn't like my movies. I had no clue he didn't like uh, my movies. That so this well, was totally you know, no, no information. Uh. <laughs> but, it, but it's just like again, like that's been the narrative for her, you know, which you know probably from listening to him talk about my films was a completely legitimate conclusion for her to come to. And knowing that he probably wasn't going to spare me hearing it, but I actually hadn't heard it. So it's just like I feel like it's just this ongoing process of realizing over and over again that we all have completely different narratives. All of them have some half truths in them. All of them are basically flawed.
0: Yeah. Wait. So he was critical of your work before he knew you were his daughter or he already, he
1: always knew, didn't he? I remember. I, I think he always knew, but I found him literally the first time I met him was at a screening of away from her. So I didn't have any films for him to criticize before I met him. And then I provided him with material.
0: (laughs) Right. I always thought of my, my father was a very critical person. And I always knew that if I were not his daughter, he would hate my work. Like I would be the kind of like, is when I was a newspaper columnist, well, you know, anything, but I was a newspaper columnist for a long time. And so the kind of, you know, I was in people's faces every week sort of thing, you know, with grouchy men, you know, (laughs) complaining at the <laughs> breakfast table about how stupid this columnist is kind of thing. And I know my father would have been one of those people about a lot of my work if he wasn't my father. But was
1: he critical to you directly? No. Like, did you know, uh, not a- uh,
0: if, on little things he would say, well, I think you were wrong about this or that, but no, he was okay. proud overall, but th- this is to your point, you know, like it, there could be an entirely different version of life where I was some random columnist writing the exact same columns verbatim. And Uh he would just be like, this is horrible. This is like, I just, who is this person? I don't understand any of this, whatever, who cares? And if, since I was his daughter, he was like, oh, this is really interesting. Occasionally, occasionally brilliant. Not, not frequently. (laughs) Once every blue moon. But yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny how that is. We're going to pause here for a brief message. The Unspeakable with Megan Daum is sponsored by BetterHelp. We talk a lot on this podcast about things like life choices and being guided by honesty of thought, but it's often not that simple. I've been candid here about my own struggles, and I'd be the first to agree that life does not come with a user's manual. But better help Online Therapy can be the next best thing, no matter what kind of challenge you're navigating, a career change, starting a new relationship, or becoming a parent, BetterHelp's therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. That makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. Now, I've done plenty of therapy myself. Of course I have. I've lived in New York City, and I've gotten a lot out of it. But it's expensive, it can be difficult to schedule, and sometimes you have to go through a lot of different therapists to find the right one. BetterHelp makes all of that easier. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. There's no waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com unspeakable. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash unspeakable. And now back to the conversation. Speaking of different versions of the same story, yeah, what I talked about in my review was what I thought was the most interesting piece in the collection, is about the case of John Gomeshi, who was the CBC radio host who was prominent Me Too case. He was charged with multiple counts of sexual assault. You had known him for many, many years. You were both public figures in in Canada. You have this just remarkable essay where you talk about how you'd had a really bad experience with him and you sort of made it into a funny party story. So there was one version of the experience that you thought about a certain way and there was the reality of the experience, which was a different thing. And there was the way you talk about how you sort of played along with him just for years, pretending that everything was okay because it actually benefited you, that it was incredibly honest. And then I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that piece.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think this happens with a lot of people who have, you know, been in had traumatic things happen to them where, you know, you kind of click into this kind of survival mode where you, you kind of translate the experience into something else and something that's easier to live alongside and with And usually, or at least often, I think it involves making it funny and suppressing the hurt. And that's that's certainly what I did um, with that story. I think that also there wasn't language for it in the same way there is now. So, you know, a lot of things that fell into the category of a traumatic experience or harm done or assault would have been told as a story of a bad date. I, I think many of us did this for many years. I remember once sitting with two other actresses and us saying, we should make a film of our worst experiences ever on set. And let's tell them to each other. And the, and so we told our funniest story, like our funniest bad story. And by the end of it, we were all kind of breathless because what we realized was we were all telling stories about assaults, that we had turned into funny stories. And it wasn't until we saw each other's faces listening that we realized that what we were saying was actually really horrifying and not funny at all. And I think we—it it is a very common coping mechanism. And the impetus for writing that essay was, I kind of watched, horrified as women came forward in that case and were really raked over the coals in that courtroom for being inconsistent, for having friendly behavior after the incidents, which to that judge felt inconsistent with their stories, of assault for anyone who's been assaulted, that is completely consistent with it. I mean, I think it's very rare that there's someone fitting the profile of the perfect good victim who like runs out, calls the police, never speaks to the person again. You know, it's it's it just doesn't happen. And so, the the impetus behind writing that essay particularly was what we don't see is the decision making process that most women go through who have been through something like this, where they decide not to come forward. We don't hear from them. We don't see the stickiness and messiness of that decision-making process. We don't get to understand how and why somebody wouldn't come forward and how much the deck is stacked against them when they're to look at all of the things they've done and said that could be confusing to people because out of fear. I mean, I think in terms of my subsequent interactions with him some of which are interviews that you know I've looked up and and, and used as preparation for writing the essay because I was like I'm going to have to be my own twitter troll here like I'm going to have to be my own judge and jury where I look at what's inconsistent up against what I'm claiming and I mean god there's like stacks of evidence that this doesn't make any sense why did i go on his show to promote films why am I laughing as Joe? jokes? I love like, the way it, you just make fun of yourself. I mean, yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, and there's there. like an Ugh. obsequiousness there that actually is very out of character with me. So when I look at it now or anyone who knows me well who watches it goes, that's you being afraid. That's not you doing anything else except being terrified because you don't act like that with anybody else. Like there's a kind of like playing along that isn't even characteristic of me, but there was a kind of fear of him and of offending him and of evoking his anger that I see in that. I mean, was I doing it to benefit myself? To be honest with you, like I do sort of what I'm asked to do press wise when I'm promoting a film I'm not necessarily going like, I mean, at that point, I don't think being on a show would have been particularly helpful to my career, but it was like on the junket. And I wasn't, I didn't feel the right to say to someone, Hey, look like this horrible thing happened because, you know, it was sort of rumored that he was a quote unquote, terrible date with everybody. It was just what everybody knew, but like what the meaning of that is, you know, I think we have better language for now than we did then. And it, it doesn't take the form of quote-unquote terrible date anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, he was 28 and you were 16 when you Mm -hmm. went on the date
1: with him. That's kind of terrible right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're going to do what he did. I mean, it's horrific. So
0: what do you think of the way the Me Too conversation has evolved? Talk about complicated.
1: I think it's really complicated. I'm glad it happened. I think that there is a language for things that didn't exist before. I mean, the trial of Gianca Meshi happened before the Me Too movement. I believe strongly, and so do a lot of people I know, that that trial would have gone completely differently had it happened after the Me Too movement. So I think there's a lot that's changed. I think the kind of calling of expert witnesses who specialize in trauma and memory in cases like the Jacob Hogard case in in Canada recently, which was this, you know, this rock star who was found guilty assault and in the Harvey Weinstein trial I think the the calling on that research and knowledge and information of how how post assault behavior can look so incongruous with the assault how memory isn't a consistent perfect thing after trauma I think this is all amazing stuff to have in the conversation I do feel like it's become a little stalled somehow I mean first of all we're facing a backlash of wild Misogyny that you know has always been there, but I think now is fe- feeling permission to come out and start screaming itself into being again. But I also feel like, in terms of the conversation itself, you know, there's a sense of this kind of like helplessness and rage and grief, and it's really exciting to me when people start talking about what a future might look like what a better and just and equitable world might look like how we might build that and that feels to me like a a salve and a and a better place to live than only mired in the grief and the rage which which has a place and is a necessary part of the process and I don't begrudge anyone who's who's in that place at the moment but I just feel like we societally also need off ramp of imagining what's next and what can we do and what are the solutions and who are our allies
0: when you say there's a lot of that there's a huge amount of misogyny barreling through what are you referring to exactly what's most top of mind for you when you talk about this
1: um i'm trying to i can't think specifically i just feel like there've been a number of occasions recently whether they be news stories or trials where people who have been sitting on a lot of anger towards women have had enough of being quiet now. You know, they've just had enough. They've felt um, constrained and censored and they're furious. And they're just, for them, like, you know, our time is up, we've had our moment, it's time to shut up again. And I just feel like you can kind of feel that, I mean, obviously online is not a great barometer of like the human species, but it is a little bit of a bellwether in terms of seeing people who might've been trying to fly beneath the radar the last few years, suddenly just coming out and speaking really boldly or saying things that I don't know. It just feels like there's a fatigue with it. There's a fatigue around conversations around equality for women. There's a fatigue around conversations about diversity that like, you know, people have very short Windows of tolerance for imagining the world to be different than it is right now, especially if it benefits them, and they're sitting at the top of, of the ladder of of gender and race.
0: Yeah, I just I think it's again I you know nuance is the uh, is the theme of this of this show, and I think it gets frustrating for everybody. Like no matter what quote unquote side you're on or where you're coming from, just the lack of either willingness or ability to process the complexity of it, I and mean, I think that's something that you do so well I mean that's what women talking is all about like one woman sees it this way and another sees another way and another person sees it five ways it's like there's there's never two sides to a story right there's infinite sides to a story
1: yeah yeah, I think there are and also that it's not simple like the solutions to this are never going to be simple and and again, just this concept of being able to speak with people and work with people who you don't agree with everything on i think is so key and and also like to be honest with you i i am a big believer in second chances and you know if somebody is really hearing something and is accountable like i do think it's worthwhile imagining what it would take for us to you know, to keep them in some place in the world as opposed to sort of like exiling them. And I I do think cancel culture can just become this dog whistle word for, you know, asking people to be accountable or having actual consequences and having to hear voices that they didn't have to hear before. But I also feel like on the other side of that, I want to know what the ask is like, what, what would we like people to do beyond disappearing from the face of the earth in order to, Move forward and make things better. Because I think ultimately, isn't that the goal? Like, isn't the goal to actually see shifts both externally and internally with all of us? And what does that look like when you say you're excited about build back better in the
0: culture at large? Like, where do you even start? Because I think this is where people get tripped up because they go, oh, well, that's a utopia, that's a fantasy, that's naive, you know, get serious. And yes, that those things are true, but we have to do something. I mean, we can't just sit around and complain about what we are not allowed to say. First, we should just talk about the solution. Like, instead of complaining about how we're not even allowed to address the problem or identify the problem, we should talk about the solution. And But it's really hard because building something is a whole lot harder than tearing it down
1: yeah it is and i and I think again, it's like this is what requires conversations with so many people who we might have not first blush want to speak to, but ultimately have the same long term goals is to you know to see a more equitable society and to see more difficult complex nuanced conversations that kind of get us to a vision of of what we want and I just think there's so much we do based on some sense of pragmatism of yeah, well, that would be nice, but it can't happen because of A, B, C, or D. It's like, this is not how great things get built. They don't get built by cutting yourself off at the past and talking about why things can't happen. I mean, great things get built because someone's willing to take a risk and posit something that seems unrealistic and try for it. It doesn't have to be perfect in its realization, but it does have to be in our hearts and our minds, I think. Well,
0: you're a white woman making films, and I'm sure you have observed that this is a moment where white women are some white women would say they've gone out of style uh, <laughs> maybe maybe rightly in some cases. Are you a person who if you if there was a project you wanted to do for instance, and you got passed over for somebody a person of color for instance or a woman of color, how would you Process that. Like, because I would imagine there's like the Sarah who knows that that's for the best, or you think that that's that aligns with your personal set of values. But then there's also the artist, Sarah, who wants to make the goddamn movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But I do think, I mean, I heard someone say, and I loved this, that justice is not always fair to the individual. We live in such an individualistic society that we take everything that's personal or personally affects us to be an indication of like the falling down of society as opposed to, you know, I just think that if you're to look at things collectively in terms of turning the ship around and justice, there are going to be moments that feel to us personally unfair. And that's part of the the messiness of trying to make a really big systemic change. So I know there are a lot of people who sort of freak out at that idea and think, you know, nothing should ever affect anybody that's you know unjust. And if it's unjust for the individual, that's a problematic society. But I think that I feel like we do have to make shifts and changes and that's going to be making room in ways that feel very uncomfortable to us in the moment. And that's part of it. So I would hope that that would be my response, that this was part of a really positive overall shift and change that that needs to happen. I also just think that the the sort of, Anger about white women that, you know, I certainly read a lot about online is, I think, you know, I don't want to like make a big assumption here, but I do feel very often in conversations around feminism, we can become really uninclusive. And I think we've shoved people out of the conversation for so many years and made it a, a conversation about white privileged women that I do think there's just a response of people feeling tired of that. And, and again, like, I don't think it's a, it's like when people, um, I just want to think about this for a second before I answer it. Cause I feel like I'm, I really want to be thoughtful about it. I guess I just feel like if we could shift some of these conversations around feminism to have more in- intersectionality in them, to be talking about issues that don't just affect you know, white privileged women. And I think there has been some movement in that direction. But I think that there's a lot of healing to be done there. I mean, I've sat in meetings, like, you know, women's committees, you know, in film and stuff, and actually heard people say words like, you know, when somebody of color puts up their hand to make a point about diversity, I've, I've heard a white feminist say in front of a giant group of women, from all kinds of backgrounds, I think we really need to segregate these issues right now in order to be effective. And I think when people have heard things like that enough times, it's, it's problematic. And certainly there just are not enough stories told by women of color. There just aren't, there's not enough BIPOC stories being told out there and there needs to be far more money going in that direction and far more resources. I don't think it means, you know, We're not still allowed to make movies. I think we just have to be really conscious that we're actually actively trying to help make space and do what we can to just not make it so, uh, yeah.
0: What do you think of the position that one cannot make art or make a film or write a book or whatever it is? about a group that they don't belong to. So I'm thinking of this documentary. You probably heard about it, Jihad Rehab. It's now called The Redacted by Meg Smocker. So this, she spent a lot of time in Yemen. She's an American, yeah. young, young white woman. She made this film about these men that had been in Guantanamo. I mean, at years and years and years of work. And a group of Muslim American or Muslim filmmakers basically got the film boycotted, got you know, was out at Sundance. She got canceled because they maintained that as a white woman, she should not have been making a film about these men. And even though she spoke Arabic, these were most of them were were Yemeni nationals. And, you know, it, the, the story had a happy ending because <laughs> it happened. The a New York Times reporter covered it. And, you know, it's had it's, it's an example of, you know, can, a, a cancellation that ends up, uh, you know, turning around and, working out in the best possible way for the filmmaker. However, there are still a lot of people who think that she shouldn't have made this film. And as a person who makes documentaries, for instance,
1: like, what do you do with that? Well, first of all, I'm interested to know what you think, because I'm so curious, like, what's your what's your sense of it?
0: Well, I, I thought that the film was excellent. For the most part, I saw a screening of it. And I thought it was, you know, she's. It's not like she just parachuted into the region and started filming these guys. She had a long history uh, there. She had been a firefighter. Like she went to Yemen after 9-11 to teach firefighting. Mm -hmm. Like she just kind of stumbled into being a filmmaker. And, you know, the film was in Sundance. And, you know, what I read was that it was a group of Muslim American filmmakers who whose films had not been accepted to Sundance for whatever reason. And they wrote a letter saying it was not acceptable that they had programmed this white woman, blonde white woman like you and me and uh, Sundance freaked out. They panicked. They canceled the film. Everybody else canceled the film. Abigail Disney, who was the executive producer of the film who five minutes earlier had been talking about how brilliant it was, was, you know, issuing the, Perfunctory hostage note saying that she had done harm, and she was going and she was deeply <laughs> sorry, you know the usual the boilerplate and it was just a travesty it was it was unbelievable, oh. and just to see every institution cave, except there was i think one film festival in New Zealand that was like, No, sorry, guys, we're screening this film and hmm. you know it's it's very easy to get exercised about this and to say the institutions are failing us, and it's the end of the artist and and all of this. But at the same time, I've written about this, there are people at the heads of these institutions, programmers of film festivals and editors of magazines and people running ideas festivals that are really kind of just pandering to a pretty reductive and narrow and unsophisticated ideology. And it is hurting artists in some cases.
1: It's interesting. I, I feel like it's so dependent on context because as you're talking, I'm thinking about. I thought about two things. The first thing was being on the jury in Cannes when four months, three weeks, and two days uh, was in competition. And it's this, that incredible Romanian film about trying to secure an illegal abortion. And it's made by a male filmmaker in Romania. And it was probably the most effective film I've ever seen in terms of women's rights because what it showed was you know, which sadly you no longer need in the United States of America is a movie to show you what, how horrifying and bloody and dangerous illegal abortions can be, like what happens in a country where abortion isn't legal. And this was a fiction film, right? It was fiction. And it was so impactful. And I just thought if everyone saw this movie, no matter how they actually personally felt about abortion, they would, they would be for safe, legal abortion, even if you don't like abortion. Like it it becomes like, if you're pro-life, you can't watch that movie and go, yeah, I, I want a whole bunch of women to die of this, you know, or, or be risking dying a bloody death. So I thought it was uh, effective because I thought it could reach people on literally all sides of that issue. And it was by, a man and it was in competition against an amazing film by a Japanese filmmaker. And I'm blanking on the name of the film and her name as well. She's a great filmmaker. And, but thankfully I'm blanking on his name too. So I'm not, a, I'm not a misogynist. Um, so, so um, there was this amazing debate that gro- that broke out. There were more women on the jury that year in Ken than there had ever been about whether to reward the film with the female filmmaker that we loved or the film that so deeply impacted a conversation around women's rights. And they were both brilliant masterpieces. It wasn't just a political debate. It was literally like, these are the two best films. Which one do we give it to? And ultimately my vote was this film that this man has made is more important to me as a woman than this other film, which I also love. But for me in that moment, and still like I'm just thrilled he made that movie. I'm not like angry he took a female experience and and took it. Then the other thing I was thinking about while you were speaking was how many white people in Canada have made indigenous stories. And there are so many great indigenous filmmakers in our country. We have some amazing indigenous producers now. We don't need to tell those stories anymore. They've got this. And I think people that I've spoken to in the Indigenous film community in Canada are really quite tired of us telling their stories. And I think it's time for us to stop now because, you know, they have not had the opportunity or been given financing. And in fact, there have been years where white filmmakers have been given money to make films about the horrors of residential schools, while Indigenous filmmakers have been turned down at the same time. There's a moment where, I, to me, that's a really clear equation. Like, Like, let's just figure out how we can support them telling their own stories instead of trying to co-opt them. So I think it's complicated and I feel like it's so dependent on context and being willing to look at the nuance of a situation and a conversation. I was quite self-conscious making a film about Mennonites because I'm not Mennonite. Miriam Taves, who wrote the book, is Mennonite. And so for me, like her telling that story is... Someone who's lived inside that culture, who's loved people inside that culture, telling that story is different from me telling it as a non-Mennonite. And because it's a community that cannot by its very nature speak back, like they're pacifists, they don't engage in popular culture, they're not going to write an op-ed, they're not going to do an interview, that's, that's not available to them in terms of what they believe. There, is, there are ethical questions to be asked about telling a story with this horrific a premise. My solution to that and thinking about it was, A, we don't say the word Mennonite. We're very um, conscious of the details of it. We're not shy about talking about the fact that this took place in a real Mennonite community when asked. But I didn't want people to be able to sort of other these issues of patriarchy and these systems of power that can be so insidious by saying this only happened in this obscure misunderstood community this hasn't happened in mine because ultimately it, it it's more of a fable like i i treated it as a fable in the way i told the story but i was conscious of it and i think it is something to be at least grappled with and thought of. To me, it sounds like, and I I didn't follow it closely, but based on your description, that the solution would have been just to let a few of those other filmmakers into the festival, not to cancel hers. What if their films were bad? Well, see, this is the thing.
0: See, and again, like, well, also because, and I have this conversation about like any given genre, whether it's like newspaper reporting or filmmaking, whatever, like, especially in the States. Okay. If you're going to be a filmmaker, if you're going to be a journalist that it doesn't pay anything. So it's going to attract affluent people who have uh-huh. family money or can do the internship at, or can live in uh-huh. New York City on a very small salary working these jobs. So any given newsroom for instance would love to hire reporters of color and they are trying desperately but there is a pipeline issue, right? Because if you're say you're a first generation to go to college, you are not going to become a documentary filmmaker, most Mm. likely, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's different in in Canada, though,
1: because the problem in the States is you're constantly hustling for money, right? So it's the same in that, like, I mean, I I think there's a real problem in terms of filmmaking, and it's not a conversation that I'm hearing happening a lot. And I think it's one that has to happen is there is no socioeconomic diversity whatsoever in terms of people making films and the stories they're telling. I've met like a few, like a handful of filmmakers over the years who somehow got themselves where they are, but everyone who's making films seems to come from a lot of money or have a lot of connections. And so that really impacts the kinds of stories we're getting to hear. And it's, it's really problematic. And speaking of ethical problems, I mean, there's a reason I've only made one documentary and it was my own family is I just think the responsibility of taking on representing other people for all time is the main record of them and what you have to do to make a film work in terms of, you know, what you're cutting and what you're not including and making those decisions about actual people that you don't have to live with the consequences of your actions. I find that harrowing. Wow. You put a lot on yourself. Well, it really is real. That's the road to paralysis. It's real though. I mean, and it's, I do think like we should be really careful when we're, you know, consigning someone to film forever. You know? No, I know. Yeah. What the ethical weight of that is so big. And I do feel like when I talked a lot to documentary filmmakers in preparation for making my film, I couldn't believe how lightly people carried that. I mean, there were a few people who didn't but a lot of people who did. And that really stressed me out. Oh yeah. And you think
0: about, I mean, the early like Frederick Wiseman, like Titicut Follies or the Mazeley's brother. Uh-huh. I mean, just the, the yeah. way that they would turn the cameras on, they go into a, you know, what was then called insane asylums
1: uh-huh. and just
0: turn cameras on people. And, but the thing is those films made an impact. You are exposing real horrors. And affecting change potentially. And it can only be done if you turn the cameras on people who don't have any power. It's so tricky,
1: right? I think it's just you have to take it so seriously. And I'm not sure everybody does. And I think you have to, I can't remember exactly what the quote is, but there's this incredible filmmaker in Canada named Alanis Obaswan. And she, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but she says something like, I never turn on my camera until I've listened for long enough to hear. And there was something in that quote that it, that strikes me as the key to something that you're, you know, or Larry Towell, this amazing documentary photographer who, you know, has shot all over the world and in war zones. And he actually has this amazing series of photos called the Mennonites. And it really, like a lot of the photography of women talking is based on it because it's so compassionate and so deeply from the point of view of the people in this community but he lives with them for months he just doesn't he doesn't come for a few days and snap a bunch of pictures like he he puts himself in a position where he would be compromising himself if he pulled back and photographed them from a distance in a way that was somehow sensationalizing or fetishizing their life like he he makes sure that he has a consequence to pay personally i don't know if he does that consciously for that reason but it's just what I see a lot of documentary filmmakers not do is, you know, instead of take upon themselves like, well, you know, you've got to get like there was this I have this big ethical dilemma in stories we tell where I interview, you know, my biological father and I interview everybody in my family. And then I also had to interview this amazing guy named Jeff Bose, who my mom was friends with around the time I was conceived. And he was rumored to be my real father for all my life. So I always heard his name. And then I found out he wasn't, I'd never met him. And and I met Harry and then I thought, oh, I need to interview Jeff for the film because I need to unpack this rumor that's gone through the film. But to do so, I had to to say to him, you know, I always thought you were my dad, (laughs) this complete stranger. And so I was workshopping my documentary for, I think, a year in this lab with all these other amazing documentary filmmakers who were making their like fourth or fifth or 10th film. And I was making my first. And so I had this opportunity to be constantly round tableing with them. And we had mentors who would come in. who were also documentary filmmakers. It was like Shangri-La. If you were learning how to make a documentary, it was at the Canadian film center. And I remember trying to brainstorm this idea with everybody I met of how do I have this interview with him? Because I, I don't want to surprise him or shock him or upset him in a way that's disturbing for him on camera because it just feels like such a douchebag thing to do but at the same time being able to reveal this to him on camera i'm that's going to be an amazing response and what do i do and the overwhelming majority was like well you've got a movie to make like you got to get that reaction yeah and it was like no, like it, my film isn't worth this to me to just like put this guy in this horribly awkward situation intentionally. It's so mean and he's heard he's such a nice guy. And then finally, Shelley Saywell, who'd made a ton of documentaries and war zones and like just amazing political documentaries and who is a truly decent person said, you could say to him on the phone, is it okay if I surprise you with something on camera? And that was such a great solution because I wasn't, waylaying him, I wasn't leaving him defenseless. I was giving him the opportunity to say no, and I still could get that reaction. And I was so appreciative of someone who thought deeply about that as opposed to just like, well, no, you got to just get the thing that- Right. There's a middle way. Exactly. Yeah. There's always a creative way of not being a douchebag and still getting what you need for your
0: film. There's always a creative way of not being a douchebag. That, those are wise <laughs> words. <laughs> um this is going to be like the thought bubble above Sarah paul Amazing. Like, little, like Instagram meme. I really well, hope so. I've, I've kept you, I've kept you for a long time and I appreciate you taking all this time. I just, before we go, I want to ask you, you're in your early forties now. Yeah. Are you glad that you are an artist of the generation that you are? Um,
1: I don't know. I feel like probably a lot of people my age that it would have been awesome to have more friends who are Gen Z because it's just such a rocking group of people who seem to have like all of this information and be so informed and have the right amount of skepticism, but be so focused. They're so focused on forward momentum and solutions. And like, I I love the people that i know that are working that are that age
0: and how do you think they're different than millennials like in terms of
1: sensibility i mean so different but i don't know why like i i can't i can't speak to why that happened but like there's a difference. I mean, we all see it. I know we're not supposed to say anything about millennials. Oh, you're a millennial. Okay. Yes, that's right. I mean, I'm an aged millennial. I feel like you're a a Gen Xer. I feel like, but yeah, no, you're right. I think of myself as like whatever right between Gen X and millennial is, because I'm too old to be millennial, really. Like that's my nieces or, you know, one of my nieces is a millennial. I can't be that. But I think I'm like, you know, a geriatric millennial or a junior Gen X. And I think we all see, you know, the kind of hope and excitement and resilience and forward momentum that generation is bringing into the conversation just feels very different from what we were doing. So am I happy to be a filmmaker of my generation? Yes. On the one hand, because I think I didn't grow up thinking that the world was about to end. And I really appreciate being given those years of not knowing, you know, where we were headed in terms of not knowing that it was change. Yes. Just like, you know, I I think we're so lucky to have not grown up in a state of constant anxiety, but at the same time, I think there's a sense of community building and the collective and of actually doing something to try to save this planet that that generation has that I am in awe of and and envious of.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I'm glad to hear that because I think I often just think about how hard it is to find an audience that will pay attention. There's just no attention span. If, you, if you're if you a creative person, you're all about holding somebody's attention. And that's nearly impossible to do now. But maybe just sort of change your expectations or just change the nature of your medium somehow. And
1: they're they're doing it. Like, I feel like all the sort of younger millennials I knew were like on their phones constantly when they were 20. And like, tuned out and like, I'm no, no, it's not the whole generation I'm speaking for, but also in the workplace, like there was a certain sense of not being invested or something. And I don't mean like breaking your back for the boss. That's not what I mean at all. But even just like, you know, being like kind of just getting joy for yourself, even like, it just felt like there was a kind of numb quality. And I feel like with Gen Z people, I feel like I'm just hearing about people reading great books and watching movies and like being super engaged and like just in, there's like an investment and excitement and a a sense of possibility coupled with, with a really appropriate amount of anger and impatience. And I, I don't know, I just think I'm excited. And again, I know I'm generalizing hugely, but I saw a huge difference generationally. So I guess so it's gross, but.
0: <laughs> no I don't you uh, feel like
1: that don't you feel like
0: I have a hard time uh define so gen Zers are like in their 20s now
1: I think like early 20s and like maybe late teens yeah
0: okay so I actually don't know a lot of people in that age group so and I don't have kids so I think that's Pro- I'm probably not around enough of them, but
1: I just you know because I think you should make your New Year's resolution to find some Gen Z friends because literally I think it's perspective and world changing. You oh. learn so much, and also you just suddenly have a whole bunch of faith in everybody. It's really the best. This is, they probably have an an app where you, where you pay,
0: and a <laughs> Gen yes. Z friend will come to your house. It's like Pat, <laughs> Grab
1: It. <laughs> And talk just, to you um, about how to fix yeah. climate change. It would be amazing.
0: Yeah. And they also like, you know, show you how to work your remote control of your TV or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. That's very encouraging. All right. Well, Sarah, it is such a treat to talk with you. I'm just such an admirer
1: of your work. And I'm really grateful to you for, for coming on. And I love talking to you. It was great having a really complex, challenging conversation. I just feel like yeah, having to think and uh, and be challenged was awesome. Thank you for everything. Maybe we can talk again sometime. Thank you so much. I would love that
0: That was my conversation with author and filmmaker Sarah Polly. Her new movie, Women Talking, arrives in theaters december twenty third. You've been listening to the Unspeakable podcast. Again, if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by joining the Substack at MeganDaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. You can also just leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. That's very helpful as long as it's positive. Finally, the first unspeakeasy retreat of 2023 will be in Los Angeles. February 18th and 19th. If you're interested, go to the unspeakeasy.com and request more information. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.